Tanner Woodford is founder and executive director of the Design Museum of Chicago. He teaches at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and paints large-scale typographic murals across public spaces. As a designer, educator, and entrepreneur, he has taught, lectured, and led workshops on design issues, social change, and design history in classrooms and at conferences. He is happy to be scrappy, irrepressibly optimistic, and believes design has the capacity to fundamentally improve the human condition. He lives and works in Chicago, Illinois. His site is tannerwoodford.com, and his museum site is designchicago.org. Tanner Woodford, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. It's so great to meet you. Uh, so... I want to just talk a little bit. I mean, obviously, we're living in crucial times, and you've addressed mm. that with you're the director and founder of the Design uh, Museum of Chicago. Uh, but so often, when people think of design, I mean, maybe some people feel it doesn't touch their life. Like they confuse designer with design, style, luxury. Um, but so much of what we live and depend on is a question of design, good or bad, right? So I just want to, you know, begin with, you know, what is design? Even though maybe that seems obvious, but no, how we all depend on design and what ways it helps us and what ways the design systems we have limit our lives. Yeah, that's a great question. And to be honest, I look at design very broadly. It's not just graphic design or architecture. It's also fashion and uh, the design of cities and the design of bus stops. And uh, everybody interacts with design at every moment of the day. In fact, I would press you to think of any place in the world that you might be able to go and not be around design or a designed object. And it's impossible. I mean, it's, it's really difficult, um, at least if not impossible. Um, I think that design, uh, because it's so broad, um, we really have to find moments to focus it and to think about a certain story. And that's what the museum does, is it finds these moments of focus and then it thinks about design or presents design or presents design stories in these places. So this could take the, uh, the form of an exhibition in our gallery. It could take the form of public art project or a series of grants um, or working with students to uplift their work via virtual and in-person exhibitions. Um, I think design, I'm an, I'm an advocate for design clearly and an optimist. And I think that design can do really wonderful things for the world. And in order to sort of frame that and understand that, it's important to also realize that design can be negative and terrible and bad. So thinking about one of my colleagues just reminded me the other day that if you pass um, a, a bench, for example, and you see spikes on the bench, the design, that's, the design intent of that is to make a bench that homeless people can't sleep on. I would say that's bad design and terrible design and design that I would not advocate for, but it's still within our field. So to think about that as, as a more, in a more positive light, um, I think it's really exciting to think about projects that would, for example, find the same audience of homeless people and find a way that they might be able to be more comfortable, but, you know, solving those problems in other ways. Um, so to, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, and I also okay. just want to, because this is a lot of a big part of our audience, our students or at university, um, to just break apart those different elements of design and certainly something that I, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. I do think about okay. design. I'm a writer. So I think about it, but 
I hadn't really absorbed the importance. And then I was having a discussion with the director of the Palabalist Dance Company, and he's mm. involved in a lot of other initiatives. I don't know if you know him, Edamar. I don't, but I'm familiar um, with the reputation. Yes, it's a great dance company. And so I thought, and there was a strange thing to hear from a director of a dance company. And he said, when you think about the world problems, all of them are problems of design. True. And Absolutely. And, and I just, when I thought about that, and then I just thought, how, how do we organize the world about the different elements of design? Well, the, a lot of us think, I think, of design is like surface aesthetic form or something. That might be a, like a yeah. thing. But then there's infrastructures. Like right now, we're talking on Zoom. Yeah. I'm, I'm on an Apple. That's another thing. There's so many, there's the internal, that skeleton, um, which enables so many things to happen, ideas to hang, things to be organized. And then there's this, as you say, like mm. how cities are organized, the macro level, you know, transportation, healthcare system. Absolutely. Yes. All designed. So. And then, and another level, and I know just in preparation for this conversation, I was thinking, well, viruses are also designed and extra. Sure. Intelligent design, I, it's bad to say, but they adapt. There's systems that adapt. And I would say that our responses, many of them have been bad designs. Mm -hmm. So um, there's all kinds of things. Like in the, my, my brain's going a million places right now. Um, the, the, I'll, I'll come back to a foundation, which for me is uh, the definition of design that I've always lived by is that design is the manipulation of form and content within context. And when you really think about that, all of those words can be, all in the sentence can be defined very differently. So manipulation, um, content, and form. A form could be, as you're saying, a, a virus, right? Um, and then the content of the virus would be the sort of the symptoms that you feel, the, the way that it ravages your body. Um, the context is, is very important in this case because the context is everything else that surrounds sort of this design decision. And um, to pull it back to, let's say, um, a sneaker, for example, you could think about design in terms of a sneaker. You have the manipulation of form and content within context. So in this case, the form of the sneaker might be its shape, the colors you choose, the content might be the textile, the fabric, all of that. Your foot maybe is part of the content. And the context is everything else. So did the delivery person have a bad day when they dropped, when they dropped it off and did they drop your box and it scuffed, scuffed the shoe or something like that, that context changes the design of the, of the, the object. Um, I, all of this is framed within for me, manipulation design is the manipulation of form and content within context and designers are the manipulators. We're the ones that are making decisions. We're the ones that are thinking about the context. We're the ones that are altering the form and the manipulation for me is really interesting because it, it, at that point, when you're in that part, Part of the process and when you're really thinking about sort of the, the overall design of an object or a story or a, um, a city, um, it's really important to think about ma making decisions that make life better. About fun, like design for me has the capacity to be the fundamental improvement of the human condition, just like it can be sort of, it can fundamentally destroy the human condition, it can fundamentally make life worth, worse. Um, I believe as an optimist that designers in whole are making decisions to make make people's lives better. And that's sort of been my guiding principle and the guiding principle of the, of the museum. And so it's interesting because as a designer, as a museum director, as a teacher, um, you're in, invested in very, um, you're involved in a number of systems. And yeah. as a designer, I'm guessing that you would have some design favorites, examples of good designs. I guess if, if we could just discuss, like, because we have to learn from those designs, the good ones and the bad ones in order to design. Absolutely. So let's just talk about, and I know this is really broad, but I think it's important. Um, 
those kind of categories that you discussed, what for you are examples of good design? Or you could throw in some bad ones too, but like just like remarkable examples for you. So a very recent one is there's an organization in Chicago called Altspace. Um, They're really fantastic. Um, And they, they, it's an artist led nonprofit in Chicago. um, And they, they had an, an, uh, sort of an, um, trying to find an image of it here. They had an activation lately where they went down on the South side of Chicago and installed a uh, pop-up free grocery store. It's like a market and it has all kinds of stuff that you, that you uh, need like shampoo and toilet paper and even plants and books. And the whole idea is that it's a gathering of objects where you can, you can show up, you can take things away, you can add things. And it's a way of bringing this opportunity to a food desert on the South side or to a healthcare desert or to places that really don't have these opportunities. And that sort of pop-up activation that is directly sort of, it's, it's from the people it's ground up and it's directly solving problems in our city feels like really good design um, on a sort of a deep, like meaningful level on kind of an aesthetic level. Of course, there's all kinds of good design that we can talk about from, you know, Nike shoes to, um, t-shirts to, um, even, even the Chicago grid, the grid of our city was designed by Daniel Burnham to sort of, um, to make navigation through our city easier about a hundred years ago. And, um, and it's, it's worked remarkably. I think that there are changes we're making and, and edits that need to be made to, to, as we're learning things um, in the future, uh, and I guess presently. Um, but yeah, I think there's all kinds of examples of good design that we that we live with every day. And uh, for me, also, good design in some in some cases is indivisible. It's something. It's invisible, rather. <laughs> my my brain's not quite 100 percent today. Um, it's sort of like when you think about typography. Uh, there's the act of kerning. So as a designer, you lay out all the letters, and then you have to make this. You have to change the space between the letters in order to make the word or the sentence more legible. And at the end of the day the reader does not know that, that a designer was there. The reader knows that it's easy to read or many of them it's difficult to read because they've done a bad job. And you might think about that in, in some ways, but at the end of the day, I think the designer's job is not to take credit. It's to, to sort of go into the world, um, do something that improves it, and then to become invisible. Oh, yes. And the invisibility part, the ease of use. Um, I remember when I was living in Ireland, they had designed a tunnel or so or who's I can't remember and I think it was just like too short yeah I mean that's so important (laughs) it's bad design exactly so all that planning you know it's kind of like a very you know you know macro or you know large chess game that you have to be anticipating and as you say the context because you don't know how people are going to use things right um, and that can be good. It can be innovative the way they use things, but also they can misuse them. So you have to anticipate. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so funny how, you know, good design is invisible most of the time and bad design sticks out like a sore thumb. It's so obvious when you find something that's designed poorly. And so uh, speak a little bit about your the uh, creation of the Design Museum of Chicago. Sure. And I mean, I think that people know like a lot of, I mean, it is a design city or we think about the Pritzker Architecture Prize or whatever, but um, why was it important for you to create the museum? That's a great question. And what uh, my answer to that question is that there, there really was never a moment that we created a design museum. It's been a very slow, iterative um, evolution over time. And it feels like every day the museum changes. That sort of nimbleness has been really important to us. 
Uh, so we started as a pop-up in 2012 in Humboldt Park in Chicago. And it was not an easy location to get to. It was sort of off the beaten path. And um, once you got to the museum, you sort of felt like you were in this sanctuary. You could spend a lot of time and really understand design from many different angles. We had four or five exhibitions and a little shop. Um, we quickly learned that it would be prudent to be in a place the public discovers us. So we decided from that point on to start bringing the museum to the people as opposed to bringing the people to the museum. Um, so our second or third pop-up activation was on a uh, moving train car. I think it was our third activation. Um, and we were on the, the CTA blue line for four or five hours with an exhibition about typography. And we had used the old marquee signage from the Chicago theater. It was in partnership with architectural artifacts. And you could walk up to the typography and grab it and move it move it around and spell different things. And then as you were leaving, we had to give you a flyer that talked about the history of typography and its importance in Chicago. And sort of the whole idea was, here's this fun experience. And then we'll, we'll sort of, once we've, we've gotten your attention, then we'll, we'll sort of move in with some of the um, educational materials. Uh, it was a huge success. We learned a lot. Uh, and then we decided to bring our pop-up to a shopping mall and put the museum right in a place the public already goes and, and, and at the and place where the public is not expecting a design museum. It's not the sort of the museum on the hill. It's the museum for the people. So we moved into this vacant space. It was about 5,000 square feet. And we became a permanent institution and started planning all of these permanent um, exhibitions uh, that would be on rotation, traveling, some juried, some curated internally, uh, and really learned a lot about what it means to present design in the context where you'll have everybody show up, whether it's homeless people or families or tourists or designers that are more educated than I am on the content we're presenting. Um, so we've learned how to write didactics for the general audience. We've learned how to sort of present stories in a way that are, that were there, that are clear. Um, over time, you know, we've, we've, over the past eight years, we've become more permanent. We've gotten a permanent gallery. We've sort of settled roots uh, in Chicago. We've got programming that's consistent. Um, and now we're faced with all kinds of new challenges. And uh, through those challenges, COVID being a major one at the moment, uh, we're using our sort of youthful uh, nimbleness to find other ways to make an impact in our city. This weekend, we're hosting a two-day self-care conference. It's all virtual. We've got about 14 speakers, um, and it's asynchronous, so you can log on at any point in the weekend and consume the content any way that you please. We're trying to keep some of the best parts about conferences while getting rid of some of the worst parts. Um, and that's something that we would have never done a year ago. It's all 100% online. All the videos are pre-recorded. It's, it's really just the museum providing a platform for people to talk about design in a very broad way from, you know, textiles and weaving to um, landscapes. Um, it'll be really exciting. Um, we're also exploring all kinds of public art partnerships and uh, grants and some pop-up exhibitions in the city and really thinking about how in time, in times of, uh, in, in, the, in the currently like current and possible times of COVID, we're trying to figure out how to take our mission to the community. Yes. I think that that's so important and something that I learned or just seemed intuitive with the, the creative process um, which is exhibitions, but also an educational initiative, is that we bring them right to universities. We've shown them yeah. in libraries or different. So if it's an exhibition about ideas, and that seems like the place to bring it, you know, it's artistic practice, but it's bringing to, so that meant that we could have like, we have more words, I think, than most exhibitions. 
we did an exhibition in 2016 called uh, City of Ideas, Architects, Voices, and Visions. And it was very similar where it was all text, uh, some audio and no visuals. And we had to figure out how to sort of activate a space. It was all about architecture. Um, so this is the only photograph I have. I mean, I could find more buried on my laptop, but this is the easiest one to find. And what we did was we built sort of, you can see these black lines, which are metal conduit. And then we stretched um, uh, uh, tracing paper, which architects use all the time, sort of over that conduit and then had uh, 25 or 30 projectors. And the projectors were constantly sort of rotating through typography and text that people had like quotes from, from interviews, particularly we did project a couple of photographs of the architect's work. Um, and then as you walked through the gallery, you, you can see it here, you would have letters across your face or chest or people's clothes or thoughts or ideas. And really it sort of felt like walking into a brain. Um, we also had a uh, cell phone line where you could call in and push, you know, number two, and then you could hear the full interview from, um, Jeannie Gang or whoever it might be. Uh, but it, it's really fun to think about sort of the, how to present this, this written content in a way that people can, uh, can, can consume it. That's interesting. Well, I might get back to you then to, to cause we we have projection elements. Um, not exactly like that. And I'm, I'm wondering, sure. um, because I'm always interested in new ways and really I'm a visual artist. So we, I, I do the illustrations. I do a portrait of you. Um, but we have other artists, but, I was just, we're expanding now the projection elements and soundscapes in a way that if you don't want to be reading it on a small, that you can go into and it kind of feeds it. So were you feeding those on a, like a design question? Are those words fed into a random, like, is it a real time creating something new each time you go into the exhibition or... No, so we had, um, I believe, 10 architects. And I can, I, we do have a lot more photographs I can find and send you as well. Our website's just having technical issues right now. It's annoying. Um, but we, we uh, designed PowerPoint presentations, and each one was a few hundred slides. And then we, uh, naturally, they're all different lengths. So we set them up on a constant rotation, had really cheap projectors, short throws that were maybe $50 a piece that we didn't mind if we destroyed, to be honest. So we just let them run uh, 24 hours a day for three months. And what happened was um, there was never a moment that you had the same experience because all the interviews were different lengths and it was rotating at different points in time. So it felt random, but it was not random. With that, I mean, I'm just I'm just interested in the design of it. Absolutely, that, yeah. would there's a computer attached to the this kind of very small projector or so we had um four or five like full-size projectors and we were using those to throw across the entire space because it would throw light further and the short throws you could put a usb stick in them and they would rotate you had visible remote control and they would rotate automatically and i think the throw was like three or four feet and it got maybe 40 inches or so so it wasn't a, a significant but if you have enough of them it tells a, a story no, it's very interesting. I think that um, our planning has been different. And um, and so I thought a lot about design for this. I don't mean to be discussing me, but I thought oh, a lot about... Okay. And I thought it's about, very relevant. And I thought <laughs> about... Um, actually, one of the oldest or older designs is the book. And I thought about... Because initially, I had all these opportunities. I still have all these opportunities. Well, there's been a slight COVID pause. Yeah. <laughs> so um, from all these universities who said yes, so like all at once. And so, and so you can't fundraise for all that. So like you just yeah. have to do exhibitions when they said, um, we want it now. We want to be the first one. So, yep. <laughs> so one of the very affordable design solutions is a book. Yeah. It turns out. And a folio book, which you 
And so that in that way, um, you can actually affordably reach. And obviously, then you get some funding too, and that's fine. And that was sure. nice. But, um, yeah. um, you can, with folios, which isn't the projection on this is another thing, but folios, you can actually, you know, transport art pretty cheaply that way it's not expensive mm. like you know and, and so i always have to think like an artist who has to self-fund by selling her own yeah. paintings to, to get i know the feeling money. yeah <laughs> yes. you, you're you know because i know and also you're a designer and a muralist i want to talk about all those things so it's it's great to have you know have these creative um conversations and and i know that another big part of um the uh, design museum is it's a it's also a museum of ideas like you've that's right yeah speak about you know the great ideas of humanity um i think that that is is very time i think that's going on is that an ongoing or you've you've sent that places yes tell us about that i'm very interested yeah it's a it's a really great idea so the (laughs) pun not intended um so let me see where do i start here um the great ideas of humanity started sort of historically, it was started historically by the Container Corporation of America. So in the middle of the century from 1950 to 1975, uh, Container Corporation of America, which is a Chicago based company, ran this amazing campaign that was heralded as one of the best in advertising history called the great ideas of Western man. And through their campaign, they worked with fantastic artists who in designers, photographers, um, sort of sculpturists, uh, painters, and would assign them quotes from the great books of the Western World series. And then the, the artist would respond to the quotes in some way, make a piece of art, mail it to Chicago, and then somebody at Container Corporation would take their logo and put it in the corner uh, and then run it in these really sort of famous newspapers and magazines with wide distribution. The intent was not, you know, the Container Corporation of America sold cardboard boxes, um, and the intent was not to further their business and sell more boxes. Really, the idea was to put more uh, great ideas into the world and to promote cultural discourse in unexpected places. Um, as you might imagine, this has been a huge source of inspiration for me in the design museum and thinking about how we put our ideas in unexpected places. With the permission of John Massey, who is the director, uh, design director of the Container Corporation of America for most of its uh, its tenure, uh, we took over the campaign and renamed it. So it was called The Great Ideas of Western Man, as you might imagine, that was immediately problematic for us as uh, people in the East have great ideas and women have great ideas as well. Um, so we decided to sort of with, uh, in the effort of globalization and connecting communities more broadly, we renamed ours The Great Ideas of Humanity. So since 2014, we have commissioned or created uh, probably around who, 75 or 80 pieces and they're just sort of like the, the mission and spirit of the design museum. They've been commissioned very broadly. So what we do is we uh, is clo- we follow the Container Corporation's process as closely as possible. And so far as we create a committee and the committee will choose quotes. And these quotes are sort of not average quotes. They're quotes that will withstand the test of time. Um, quotes that sort of have this sort of deeper um, meaning to them, deeper philosophical meaning. And uh, we'll select a half dozen of those and send them off to an artist or a designer and um, and then publish their responses. Uh, we've taken this campaign to Hong Kong, uh, to uh, all across Chicago, to bus stops, um, to exhibitions, uh, to, to sort of outdoor advertising. We've run them as uh, advertisements in magazines 
And again, the idea is not to promote the design museum, but to promote cultural discourse more broadly. Recently, we've we've transitioned this a bit to be to work more closely with uh, students. We've done a couple of exhibitions with students where we're either sort of, um, in, in one context, we worked with 826 Chai, which is a, a student um, writing program based here in Chicago. It's an after school writing program uh, that is really wonderful and does a lot of good. And we worked with them to select uh, writings that were made by students. I think they were like third through eighth graders. And we had a committee of students that would select work from, uh, from alumni from the program. And then we would take those uh, those ideas and assign them to professional designers or esteemed designers and have them respond in some way visually. Um, that was our first foray into working with kids. Uh, recently, we, we put together a new exhibition called Passing the Torch. And um, it was based on the great ideas of humanity, working with kids, uh, starting with public art. So there were two murals that we based uh, this exhibition on. One was uh, was a mosaic that was made on the side of uh, Cooper Dual Language Academy in Pilsen in Chicago, and we took um, uh, thinkers. It's a it's a it's a mosaic of portraits, and we took uh, quotes from these thinkers and leaders and philosophers, and then worked with kids to make um, uh, collages based on elements that are in these murals. And we turned those pieces, those, those works into flags and, and hung, flew the flags in the museum's gallery. Uh, so we're really thinking broadly about how this campaign can be executed in different contexts, how it can be meaningful today, how we can inspire the next generation to think about ideas uh, through this campaign. And it's ongoing. And I, we've got some ideas for, for how to, again, evolve this in the future. But for now, we're just sort of uh, following it and letting it evolve. Oh, that's wonderful because I really think that that is a responsibility and I don't think, I think that there are many educational programs at different museums, but um, the commitment that you have towards, you know, engendering better design and engendering new ideas is, is really important. We don't just want to be, and I'm always saying this to students and I know you're also a teacher, so we don't want to just be a passive audience. How is this, how does this, absor- how do you absorb that and how does it influence your creative process? What do you then do with that? You have projects, uh, the Navy Pier, Design for uh, Design for Better Chicago. Let's talk about those. Absolutely. So, um, so the museum has been really stretching in some interesting ways over the past year. Um, let's start with um, Designing Better Chicago. I'm, I'm, I'm always so thrilled to talk about that project. So the uh, it's Designing Better Chicago is a partnership between the City of Chicago's uh, Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. We call it DCASE. Um, and Neocon and the Merchandise Mart and the Design Museum of Chicago. And basically we came together and decided we were going to use our resources to make the city better in, in any way that we can. And we dreamt up um, sort of a three, three-tiered approach. The first tier is public art on the Chicago Riverwalk. And this is something that we, it's, it's free, it's for the public, it's um, experiential and it's inspirational. Those are sort of some of the ideas that we're, we're chasing there. And uh, unfortunately, we, we got delayed this year. We, didn't, we had this really beautiful design to make a gigantic red uh, pyramid with, a, with all sorts of, uh, it was designed by um, uh, Von, uh, Kong Von, Von Glino. I might be saying that wrong. I can send you the exact pronunciation of that, or spelling of that rather. Um, and uh, we delayed that this year and we intend to install it next year. 
The second tier is uh, a grant program called the Design Impact Grants, and that we were able to launch this year, and we did some good with it. I'm very excited about it. So essentially, it's a competitive process where we launch nominations in the fall, and you can nominate yourself or you can nominate a peer. Uh, and the idea is to identify people very broadly that are making the city better. That's really all that it is. Um, through the lens of design, of course, but that we, as we spoke about earlier, that is this very broad kind of idea and we can apply that broadly. So we got um, 80 some applications, uh, nominations rather, and then we, um, we invited uh, about half of those folks to uh, write letters of inquiry and go through this grant making process. And at the end, we ended up awarding two grants. One of which was to the Chicago Mobile Bakers, uh, which is, is, is run by this amazing woman named Maya Bird Murphy. And she has built this um, mobile makerspace that she takes to communities that need it, basically, and uh, goes through workshops with youth um, in those communities. It's bright red. It's beautiful. It's welcoming. The inside's got this beautiful sort of open wood um, uh, veneered layout. Um and it, it it goes into communities and, and brings good design and good design processes to these places. It's really lovely. Um, the second uh, Design Impact Grant winner was Friedman Place, and it's a home for visually impaired people. And they have uh, used design all over their living space without calling it design, without knowing that it's design, in order to improve lives. Really small things like... Um, when you uh, walk up to a, a banister and there's a staircase, they've put a piece of um, Velcro underneath the handrail so you know that the stairs are starting. They've, uh, they've put all kinds of textured tape on the floors to sort of um, guide you from place to place. Um, they've got this, uh, this uh, the only loom um, in the world, I think, uh, that can print Braille. And they're constantly making, they're going through these workshops to make um, textile, Braille textiles. Um, just little things to make, make lives better for their uh, residents. So what they are going to do with this, with the grant is to document some of these things and start to spread these ideas to other homes like theirs. Um, and just again, make life better for a community that, that needs it. Uh, this program will continue into 2021. Uh, the third tier of Designing Better Chicago is events and programs. So we've done a few virtual events this year and we look forward to doing more in person next year, uh, but it's been a really fun initiative. I'm Taya Paradovic, an undergraduate student from DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. I'm an associate podcast producer and interviewer for The Creative Process, seeking to discover the various ways creativity and the humanities are approached across perspectives across the world. This one hits close to home. Although I grew up 40 minutes away from Chicago my entire life, I was never aware of its passion for creativity and art until I moved there for college. I've been in complete awe of the city ever since. Every corner one turns, there's an opportunity to run into a meaningful mural. Besides galloping into a plethora of artwork and creatives, I also ran into the many issues in Chicago's shadows. Before moving to Chicago, I was unaware of the prominence of poverty, economic inequality, public school funding discrepancies, gentrification, and more. Tanner Woodford's dive into design's impact on society brings great insight to many internal problems, acknowledging the importance of the skeletons of design, as Mia said, the systems. Nevertheless, good design built from the minds of Chicago's creative individuals, such as Alt Space's Free Grocery Store Initiative, 
has the power to bring these internal issues to light while also actively making a difference in the community. In Alt Space's case, good design came as a result of the bad systemic design that created the food and healthcare deserts on the South Side to begin with. This leads me to contemplate, how often does good design have its origins in bad design? I immediately think about my first experience in a hostel. Each year, Hosteling International hosts a program called Valued Voices, which is a two-day experience designed to engage people in conversation around relevant social issues. The program's intentions of social change, open discussion, and acceptance are evident in the immersive structure and design. Hosteling International continues to use their space to promote and volunteer the gift of global awareness that many times gets lost in the turbulence of American society. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Tanner Woodford, founder of the Design Museum of Chicago. Uh, so Navy Pier is the number one tourist destination in the Midwest. Um, and it's this really beautiful sort of place that people come to from all across the world and from all across the Midwest to um, experience a cultural moment. And um, we have a children's museum there, um, uh, WBEZ, which is our local NPR outlet broadcast from there, uh, Shakespeare theaters. There's, there, there's all of these cultural moments um, and it's uh, also a beautiful outdoor space. The entire north side of the building uh, was a little less nice than everything else. Was you're driving to park and driving to sort of have this experience, you had this big white wall that you were confronted with. So we worked with Navy Pier to activate that space. Uh, we created a new mural, which is uh, 600 feet long. It's something like 30,000 square feet of uh, bright, colorful lines and textures. We highlighted four icons of the pier, uh, the Centennial Wheel, Lake Michigan, the Wave Wall Staircase, and the USS Chicago uh, boat anchor. And we uh, represented these four, icon these four icons with these gigantic, uh, brilliant, bright, bold illustrations. And then in the space between, we, um, we, we, had, the, we had these panels that sort of take these icons down to, down to their foundations and illustrate them abstractly. Um, the mural is visible from uh, the Lakeshore Drive, from all the residences that are north of the building. Um, I think you can see it uh, when you fly into O'Hare. I mean, it's really this bright, big, bold statement. And it was important to us, sort of like, like great ideas, to not use the space to promote something, to really use the space to just make life better, to, to provide something interesting, something inspirational. Um, and it's, another, it's just another way of the Design Museum stretching outside of our gallery walls. And I'm excited to see where these opportunities uh, lead. I think I think that those both are, you know, very inspiring, very visual, very engaging to a number of people from different backgrounds. I mean, and even experiences of the world, like um, you know, visually impaired. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, I'm speaking back to the other um, project yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so. And then I, you know, I, I just anything that celebrates good design ideas and that makes design something that is accessible to all is really important. So it's a, it's democratizing, right? Absolutely, yes, um, yeah. And we could even apply some design thinking to the current election. Maybe I will go. We'll, we'll yeah. go there in a moment. But um, okay, what you know, I thought it's interesting because um, you know, I'm an artist. I'm an artist who writes or whatever. But I have some design ideas, and I think that the arts. Like if you speak to artists, they'll say, well, I'm, um, you know, it's about emotions or the individual experience and designers, you're like approaching the same thing, but it's from a different 
end of the telescope, mm. say. But when I think about it, because uh, I do have all these conversations with creative people, but a lot from the arts, they would not call themselves designers, but what are they really, when I analyze what they're talking to me about, they're talking about how do they plot their novel? How do they, yeah, how do they structure those narratives? Um, if they're museum curators, how do they, you know, structure that experience? Um, and visual artists and how do they, you know, put together their paintings? And so it's, it's really also design mm. issues, but it seems like it's going to the personal and the feelings and the design is something that's for all. They can take all those shapes and funnel into a, a mold. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but you're also, I should say, um, a visual as a designer, but a visual artist. You've done these great murals, and a lot of it's to do with time. Take time, and let's discuss some of your personal work. Sure, yeah. And I also want to say before we do that, that you know we're spending a lot of time talking about the work that we do to take the museum out of the gallery walls. And I think it's important just to mention that we also are an exhibiting museum and we have, uh, we might want to talk about this. The ex I just want to talk about the exhibitions for a second, if you don't mind. Oh yes, please. I think I, when you ask me for examples of ideas, I'm so excited about the things we're doing in the world right now that it sort of escaped me. Great, great ideas is an exhibition that we do in our gallery as well. So we did touch base on that. Um, we think about our exhibitions when we think about uh, design, the way we think about design, which is very broad. And we, we then think about the cadence of our exhibitions. So it'd be very rare for us to have, say, a graphic design show followed by an architecture show. In fact, it'd be very rare for us to have a graphic design show, period, because we tend to think about uh, content first. So last year, we did this amazing exhibition on bicycles that I'm really proud of. And it was about sort of 100 years of bike history centered in Chicago, um, which has been really sort of influential in bicycle design over the years. And we only had six or seven actual bicycles. We were telling stories much more broadly about community, about fashion, about safety, about civic design, um, about sort of um, public bicycle use, um, just this really broad story of how bikes have been impacted uh, and about Chicago has impacted bikes rather. Um, following that show, we did an exhibition on Chicago theater and it was a very different exhibition where it wasn't curated. Um, it was invitational, uh, juried. And what we did was we reached out to every single theater in the city of Chicago. We're a theater town. Um, there's something like 350 theaters at the moment from city block sized opera houses to pop-up storefront, um, temporary theaters. And we asked all of them to contribute an object that tells their story. Uh, the biggest object we had was from Looking Glass Theater, and it was an octopus tentacle that was 30 foot tall um, from, from uh, 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 100,000 leagues under the sea. Um, the smallest object we had was a decapitated head. Um, that, uh, an actor got decapitated on stage and uh, somebody carried his head out after the fact. It was very creepy. It was the first prosthetic that this woman had made and was very lifelike and um, showed that her amazing skill. I wish I could remember her name off the top of my head. Um, and uh, this exhibition was really community-based. And we, we thought a lot about um, uh, not just equality, but um, uh, sort of how, how we were being equitable through, this, 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 the, the, through the, this exhibition as well. And by that, I mean in terms of uh, content, uh, geographic area of the city. Uh, it was, we, we found when we did this first call that... 
the bigger theaters were very quick to contribute something because they have entire marketing teams and they save all of their objects and they can respond very easily. Whereas smaller shops had a really hard time responding because they didn't have the people, the time, um, they certainly had the interest. So we found that we really had to spend extra time going to different suburbs, visiting theaters and asking them to uh, contribute something uh, and, and really helping them through the process. And at the end, I think we had something like 60 theaters participating and it was this really broad sort of look at uh, theater in Chicago through objects and costumes and props and stage design. And it was really, uh, again, very different from a bike show. So we think about these ideas, we think about the cadence of these ideas sort of in how we're presenting them, uh, but also in how we're presenting them visually. So the gallery will change dramatically from show to show. Um, you know, we'll tear out, we'll tear out walls, we'll, we'll create rooms, we'll paint the entire space a different color, we'll switch the floor out. We really think about sort of the experience of coming to the design museum. We're not big. Um, so we also think about the experience of coming twice and how does the entire space change from show to show. Um, that's been hard in COVID times. You know, we've only had one exhibition this year and it only lasted a couple of months. So we're planning um, next year, we're planning 2022. You know, we're thinking really deeply about the future and how we can carry these exhibitions forward. So I just wanted to mention that. It also kind of relates back to my my personal artistic practice as well. Um, so it's an, it's, it's an important thing to, to stop on for a second. Oh, completely. And it just shows the ways that design, it also relates to that about being an artist. Um, Yes, Chicago is, of course, a great theater city, but how much, how important those designers are into telling stories, whether it's costume, whether it's the sets, those stories would be impoverished. Without, I, I just don't know if they would exist without that. I'm with um, you, yeah. yeah. So, um, and so in your personal work where you've done these, these murals, and I'm sure there's many aspects that I don't know, but um, I guess... Uh, to speak about take time or some of your yeah. pieces um wh how did it come about and what were the, the what were the, what was the thinking process the planning process yeah so again sort of like running a design museum um i didn't plan to become a muralist it just sort of happened and my work has evolved a lot over the years and this is something i found that i'm really uh, proud of and settled on um, I started making murals actually when my daughter was born. Um, just months after she was born, I had all of this uh, creative energy and just got really inspired to uh, to start making. So the first mural I made was over in Gary, Indiana. Um, are you familiar with Gary? Tell, tell us about it and how did this come about? So um, there's this amazing uh, person living in Gary who really just wanted to improve her community. Gary, if you're unfamiliar, was a steel town and it was full of life. And then um, as things developed, uh, everybody moved out and now it's a ghost town just to oversimplify the story a little bit too much. And, um, so I was invited to come and paint a mural on the side of an expressway. Um, their goal is to create something like 80 pieces and, uh, the city is full of um, uh, vacant houses and storefronts, and it's just sort of in ruins. And I don't say that to talk down about them because it's a really, it's an amazing community. And they welcomed me with open arms as I was painting. They were driving past and honking. Somebody literally stopped and yelled, thanks for making Gary better. It was the sweetest experience. So I had this idea to create this mural that says things take a long time and to stretch the typography and make it feel slow and long and like it was evolving in some way. Um, I chose a site that was very public. It's the exit off the expressway if you're coming into town. 
And um, I also, also chose a site that was not prepared. So they took all kinds of uh, time to paint white walls, to remove old paint, to make beautiful canvases for a whole lot of artists that took advantage of it. But with this phrase, I really wanted to make a mural that would change over time. So I chose a spot where the paint was chipping, where there was oil leak, like leaking down from the trains above, um, and where uh, the sun was just constantly beating on it. And then I chose a color that will um, fade with time and will become, will feel, uh, the longer it takes, the more it'll feel like it's really part of this community. The thing that I love about the location too is it's it's almost the last thing you see before you enter um, the uh, industrial corridor, the sort of the steel making corridor. And it reminds them that even, at least it reminds me that even if the community is in shambles now, and again, I'm not, I'm not talking down to them, um, that, uh, that things do take a long time and there's this optimistic approach to, to the future. Um, shortly after that, I was invited to make a mural on the side of a public office in Chicago called Some Office. And uh, this is in Bucktown. So it's a really sort of uh, busy street, busy intersection. And uh, I thought I would go with the, the traditional Miesian statement of less is more. You know, we are an architecture city. Um, again, I chose this blue because it's, it's sort of eye-catching as you're driving past and it, it's something that you'll want to spend some time with. For this one, it, I felt it was important to reveal the, the, the brickwork below, the sort of beautiful yellow uh, brick. And um, the thing that I love about this one, it's sort of subtle and sort of obvious, is that as the typography bends around this corner, um, it feels like it's connected in one long piece, but really the type never touches. I thought that was important that we're, we're actually taking a cut out of this mural and using less to say more. Your eyes just sort of connect it immediately. Um, just a, an interesting uh, detail. Um, shortly after that, I'm just going in order here. This was all in the span of maybe three or four months. I did this mural, um, Time Works Wonders. This was at the Wonder Museum in Chicago. And shortly after this, I had things take a long time. I had less is more, which isn't really time focused. But I started being pulled back to this idea of time. Again, thinking about my newly born daughter, thinking about um, just everything that was changing in the world at that moment, thinking about the time that I invested in the museum, uh, just sort of stuck on this idea of, uh, of time. So for this one, I thought it was important to use, utilize the staircase and to think about sort of depth and space and creating a mural that's interactive that you can climb on, that you can sit on, that you can think about. Um, I haven't debuted this quite yet, but I, I'm creating uh, companion pieces for all of these murals too on canvas. So I just finished up Time Works Wonders. It's hard to get the whole thing in the shot. I oh, I like up. that. It's, it's Thank you. great. And it's so it's, whereas sometimes the, to describe it, I will share images of this, but there was, before you were kind of drawing like in straight lines. Now this is yes. this lovely zigzag. Yeah, so it's, you know, another um, exploration of time. You know, maybe it's not always mm -hmm. linear. Exactly. Yeah. And, and trying to recreate also the, the feeling of being on the staircase without the ability to be on the staircase. Um, this one, it's for some reason, I don't always care about perfect lines in my work. I think it's important to show the human hand, but this piece for me felt like it needed to be perfect. So I've spent so much time touching up the lines on this one. And I was actually visiting the Water Museum over and over again as well, touching up the lines there because as I got used, it got, um, I got, uh, scuffed and, and that kind of that kind of thing. I wanted to quickly show 
also take time and make time. And I'm happy to send photographs of any of these to you as well. Just let me know. Um, this piece was created on the cornerstones of the Soho House Chicago. Um, I think this was in 2019. And basically every month for four years, they invited a different artist to come make, and make a mural on these cornerstones. So there was just all of this depth, literally, of paint, of wheat paste, of different of gold leafing, of different ways of making murals. So I showed up over a weekend with all kinds of tools, knives, uh, grinders, uh, blowtorch, and slowly excavated, revealing all of the artwork from prior artists. And then at the end, put make time and take time on top of it. Um, I used uh, a pink that uh, really, it's called calamine. It was a really sort of subtle uh, light pink that's used inside the space as, as the final layer, again, to sort of tie it all together. I actually got deep enough to reveal a JC Riviera piece, and he was the first artist to paint on this cornerstone. Um, he stopped by as I was painting, and it was so fun to show him his work again after four years of being buried by 150 layers of paint. Um, it was up for a month, and then somebody else added a layer on top of it again, uh, as it as it should be. So I've done all kinds of other works, some public, some private. Um, this was done at Threadless in Chicago in their corporate headquarters. Um, it's uh, iridescent vinyl, so as you move around, the light follows you and changes. Um, it's uh, metallic and glittery. It's a really beautiful piece. And then I'll show you, I've done three pieces in... At, um, I'm bouncing back and forth between these two files because they open simultaneously for some reason, or different for some reason. Um, I've done several pieces at, in the John Hancock building. Uh, this is one that says the best ideas travel, and it's a city block long. So it starts on a corner and then goes down the entire building of John Hancock to the other side, and this is the other side. Um, I've added since then uh, arrows to the piece where they're kind of bouncing around and going up and down and zooming in between the, the letter forms. Um, I need to find that piece. Um, this is another piece in the John Hancock. It says, make things that change things. Um, and it's uh, just really beautiful. It goes, uh, it's inside their kitchen where it starts by one of the desks. And then you can see on this right side here that it wraps around the doorway and the light switches. Um, and just a, a, a gentle reminder for them, and this, this one is not about time, but it's about using their platform to, to make change in the world. Um, I quickly followed that up with this top piece here. Um, the future is not what it used to be. And um, I installed this actually in a gallery uh, in uh, Logan Square and then moved it. It's a light box, moved it to, Web, to Weber Shanwick and the John Hancock building downtown as well. Um, and then I'm just going to show you everything because I might as well. Uh, this is a piece that I did on my buddy's garage. Uh, he's a very avid cyclist. The name of our bicycle show that I mentioned to you earlier was Keep Moving. And uh, Kevin and I were talking about this idea, and he was just kind of obsessed with the idea of, of continuing to move. Um, so I showed up to his house one day, taped off the letters, Keep Moving, and then he and I brought um, something like 25 or 30 gallons of paint, all different colors, and all day we just threw the paint on the garage door wall just over and over and over again. And it was raining outside, so that affected it as well. And it was just this really active um, moment where we just kind of created a mess. <laughs> and then we pulled the, the tape away and revealed the plain white um, sort of keep moving. And it has this really interesting uh, tension to it. The companion piece for this one, too, is hanging in my kitchen. And it's, it, it turned out great. I'm really proud of it. 
Um, I think that's all the murals. Um, I have got more that I have not documented uh, and I've got all kinds of canvases that I've started that eventually will become murals. So sometimes I start with the mural and then I translate it to canvas. And sometimes I start with canvas and then I translate it to a wall. Well, that's, sorry, I must tell me, no, okay, I'm not muted. Um, so I think that those are, it's really great. And that's that kind of um, living, um, evolving um, typography. And it's great that you can have those messages that allow us to invite meditative moments or perhaps to, you know, take responsibility to use our platforms, you know, more effectively to positive social change. Um, so I, I think that that's, uh, I, I, re I really like that they're really strong graphic, graphically and artistically. So Thank you. I'm uh, excited. I've got some ideas, some ideas and some opportunities on the horizon. And I think this, this series is going to keep changing and, and pushing. I'm, I'm excited about it as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, just even in the John Hancock building, I mean, uh, the, the length of that. Now, are you working all are you, when you have a big project like that? Are you painting or do you have some helpers that might? <laughs> wow. Yeah. The only one that I've had helper a helper with was keep moving. Uh, and that was because it was sort of like a, uh, the concept for that piece was that it was the two of us collaborating together. So we ended up doing that. But I think every other piece I've done alone. Oh well, that that's even more significant because I I mean I understand when people need helpers. But, yeah, um, absolutely. When things are that big, you know, we only have. Yeah. Um, but so you must be a very productive as well. Well, um, and part of it, I think you you use the right word, which is meditative. And part of it for me is the content is meditative, and, and as a viewer standing in front of it, you know, it provides this moment of uh, of reprise. For me, creating the mural is that being in a space by myself for 15 or 20 hours and sort of really focusing on, you know, being six inches from, from the wall and really focusing on um, executing highly and then to take a step back and observe it as I'm completely exhausted and wiped out. There's just this, this amazing feeling uh, uh, where I feel uh, sort of grateful for the opportunity. I feel proud of the work um, and then I can sit and meditate again on sort of that, that effort. Um, I, I'm inspired by working. I'm inspired by producing. Uh, I don't often get the opportunity to work alone. Everything I do at the design museum is highly collaborative. And this is a contrast to that as well, where it's a moment of, it almost feels selfish if I'm being entirely honest, even though it's, I'm not creating something for myself, taking that time, even just away from not, I don't, again, don't mean this for this to sound bad, but getting away from my family for a little bit, getting away from my colleagues for a little bit, and really just kind of having a moment to reflect and create something is one of the best feelings. And, and I love my family and I love my colleagues. Of course you do. <laughs> no, but everyone, every artist, everyone, anyone yeah. can understand that. Um, you actually need some kind of solitude to create as well. I agree so with that. Those yeah. spaces. Um, you, you discussed it a bit and you discussed... Um, you know, ways you're engaging with um, schools. So I'd love to hear more about that. What are some I mean, interesting courses about in design for social change and things like that? You know, but what do you, what are the essential things that you feel that you are, is really important for you to impart to students? And are they all design students? Or, I mean, you may be communicating with others. Just tell us about that. So, yeah, there are two contexts in which I, I teach. One is at the School of Art Institute of Chicago, and that's with clearly postgraduate, or some postgraduate, some uh, um, graduate, and some undergraduate students. Um, that's a different level than teaching at a Chicago public schools with uh, elementary school kids or high school kids. 
Um, so starting with the sort of college course, I haven't taught in a couple of years and I, I really do miss it, to be honest with you. Uh, things just got too busy with uh, having a baby and hitting all these murals and, and trying to, to, to stabilize the museum. Um, those things have been uh, pretty consuming. So I've stepped back from teaching a little bit. The course that I taught there was called Design Thinking for Social Change. And um, uh, it had a range of students from freshmen to graduate um, and, and everybody in between from multiple departments. And really the idea was to identify a problem. It sounds really simple, but identify a problem, brainstorm around it, propose a solution, and then enact that solution. And as you might imagine, we spent a lot of time in the beginning thinking about problems. And generally, uh, when students come to the table, they come with solutions. So they'll say, I want to decrease emissions from cars by 30% in four years. You know, and, and, um, and the response from the class is usually, oh, that's wonderful. That's so great. Um, how are you going to do that? And then you sort of start to see their minds expand a little bit. So my general, my first question is generally, give me a budget. And that's when they realize they've bitten off something that's way too large. Their eyes are bigger than their stomach. So from there, um, we, we, we tend to back down and we think about, okay, if we can't change um, emissions by whatever percent and whatever amount of time, um, can we start to change attitudes? And can we start by changing five attitudes or three attitudes? And how do we get people to, to for example, choose to take a bike or a bus over their car? What incentives do we have? And we really start to boil this down to an achievable problem. And then from there, we can start to do research. We can start to think about who else tried this? What have they learned? Um, what can we go into the into the community and try to, to convince some people, interview them, see what they how they react? And we just sort of follow the process. Us. I like to remind students over and over again that they are fully in charge of designing uh, their goals so they can change their goals at any moment. They can change their solutions at any moment. And because of that, they are in control of their success. So if they, at the end of the semester or a week before the end of the semester ends, they can change their goal, change the project to be something they've already done and thereby succeed the class, even if it wasn't what they set out to achieve. And I think that's an important lesson uh, in general is that you do have control over the projects you take on, even when you're not the boss and in charge, you have the power of making suggestions, of like bringing feedback, bringing advice, of being persuasive, of manipulating the way people see you and see the work that you're doing. When I teach, it's very rare that I ever come with a solution um, and in fact, if I'm asked a, a question, it's also very rare that I give an answer. I think it's really important to promote that inquisitive learning. Um, so a clear example of that is one year we had a client for this class and we were working with a restaurant in Logan Square in Chicago. And um, they were very open. When we, when we showed up the first day, one of the students said, what would success look like for you? And they said, we want to get a billboard out of this, which we'd never heard. Like they, they hadn't, I guess they hadn't mentioned it, but the students hadn't heard that yet. So we went down this entire path of, trying to figure out sort of is a billboard the right thing for your restaurant? Are you, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get an audience. You're trying to promote your offerings. Um, but what, you know, you're, you're in this new community or a new restaurant. Let's figure out what the community needs. So we, we stood on a street corner and just interviewed people that were walking past, ask them what they were missing, um, ask them, you know, if they had animals, if they had brothers and sisters, like who they lived with, um, how often they ate out, like just all kinds of questions just to, to learn. And um, one of the students, we ended up having, we had 12 students that promote, that proposed 12 different solutions to this restaurant. And they were brilliant. One of the students proposed on Sundays that they open a soup kitchen in the basement with all the materials that they weren't using throughout the week. And they give us, a, the, the, they work with volunteers and they give the food away for free um, as a way of, A, less like reducing their waste, but B, promoting 
that they are a, a contributing member of society um, to our community. Uh, we had 11 other ideas that were just as, as brilliant. Um, one of the, I'm just telling you a story because in the second or third class, we were talking about gentrification and how much Logan Square is changing. And we were asking the question of, is this restaurant gentrifying the community? And should we be concerned about that? And one of the students just very honestly said, what's gentrification? And everybody looked at me and I just said, I don't know. You know, I do know. And I've got a perspective, but I, I really wanted the student, the, the, the class to talk it out a little bit. And we led the, the conversation led to such interesting places and really informed the way that students change their projects. And, and of course I made sure I was steering them in the right direction. And I was asking questions that would get to the correct answers as well. But every, every time I teach that class, we come up with such different solutions, such different outcomes. We ask different problems and, and uh, we ask different questions that lead to that are within the context of different problems. And uh, I think that's really exciting. So we take that same kind of spirit to uh, Chicago, Chicago public schools as well. And we, we've led a variety of workshops um, with different goals and outcomes and constraints. Sometimes it's with CPS. Uh, we, we love to work with this other group called One for One. And um, they are a bunch of students who live in really bad neighborhoods in Chicago and have had really bad circumstances, mostly around uh, gun violence. Some of them have lost a parent. Some of them have parents that are incarcerated. And over the years, we've done workshops with them several times. And um, the most recent one was uh, the idea was to pick five objects from your life and to tell a story with them. And the idea, the hope was that then we could uh, we could find objects that are nearby. They could arrange them and photograph them, and just make a storyboard and just tell a story. And sort of the, the head fake with that project is that we want them to get better at telling their own stories. Um, these students are they've been through so much, and they are uh, so smart and so talented and so driven, but they don't know how to talk about themselves. So we're starting to get them to talk about other other objects and other stories, so they can reflect and figure out how to talk about themselves. We have done billboard projects. We worked with a bunch of students to make um, artwork that was then hung on State Street. And generally, when we go through a process like that, we like to work with the students to do collages, to make things with hand, with their hands, to draw to color and then we take their creative artwork and we we translate it digitally for them so then we have an opportunity to to have an intervention to take their ideas and to refine them a little bit and then to take their final composition and put it in front of, front of a committee to select what, what gets used and what gets printed we've done that a few times and the idea there is again to bring the students into the process but not to give them control of the whole process and then we always sort of report back to them and say these are the decisions we made. We changed everybody's colors to be consistent. We, you know, uh, made lines straighter, like made typography bigger because of hierarchy. And then we described what hierarchy is. So we use that all as a teaching moment as well, as opposed to just sort of um, giving them all of the tools and then publishing exactly what they make. And I found we've done both of those things. And I found that when we bring them, when we make them a part of the process, they usually learn quite a lot more. Yes, of course, because then they understand that there is this editing process. There's this, how you, it's not just an idea, how does that fit with the whole, so you're really telling them how design works as well, that it's not absolutely just a unique vision because you have the client's vision or whoever is the user's vision. Um, 
Yeah. Those are great. And I love to hear that you're, you're working within, um, well, universities, inner cities, working with local business owners. I mean, this is, these are all people who use design, consumers of design, um, and, and make design for their clients then too. Um, Absolutely. So th- th- those are really, and I'm, so I'll be looking into CPS and one for one as, as well. Um, we have some inner city uh, high school projects too. And I know, how important that is for them to be heard, you know? Absolutely. Um, as you say, and just, the, and just the context, they might not realize that uh, creative careers are possible. I don't need them to become designers necessarily. Uh, they could become accountants, you know, but I think that uh, the exposure and talking about the process and being really open about, um, about the possibilities uh, really wakes people up. Yeah, exactly. Because they need someone to model themselves off, off mm. to, whatever, however they use it. You know, these are tools yep. for any application and a variety. And I guess that's what the important principle design we had a, too. We had a group of students come through the setting the stage, the theater exhibition I described earlier. And we had a very open and honest tour. And there were some really deep thoughts and uh, deep ideas in that exhibition. We worked with one theater that was completely dedicated to mental health. And they were telling the story of a gentleman who was wrongly incarcerated for 10 years. And um, as part of, so it was a play that they created to celebrate this individual and tell his story. And as part of the experience and seeing the play, they taped off a section of of the floor that was the size of the jail cell and let you stand in it. And they showed you, um, and two people lived in this tiny space, and they showed you um, uh, calendars where this gentleman had marked off every day for 10 years and had tracked time and... Uh, infographics to describe how many people are wrongly incarcerated. And it was a, a really heavy story. It was one one story of 60 that we were telling in this exhibition. But these students who came through were from one for one. And um, they, they, had, they had seen some of this, this uh, up close themselves. They had parents who had been incarcerated or cousins or family members. And we all stood in the jail cell together and just talked about what life would be like and just had this really general kind of deep, meaningful conversation. They did a lot of talking. And after they left and went to um, have lunch somewhere and talked extremely openly about gender and sexuality, which were not part of our exhibition. They were represented in other, in other theaters. They weren't anything that we, we dwelled on necessarily, but just sort of being in this environment and um, being open to these ideas and, and being exposed to the fact that uh, that there are people, other people in the city that are thinking about this in a more productive and positive and helpful way, just open their eyes and allow them to be, to speak freely. And I think there's something really powerful about storytelling in that. There's something really powerful in, in museums where you walk in and you're in a neutral territory or a neutral ground. It lowers your expectations. It lowers your, um, I guess it doesn't lower your expectations, but it sort of lowers your barriers and allows you to be open to ideas that you wouldn't otherwise uh, experience. And I think that's true whether you're part of the program uh, where that, that helps people on the West and South sides or whether you're privileged or whether you are uh, with your grandparents. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. It's my point. When you walk into a gallery, when you experience a mural, uh, it completely opens you up to uh, new ideas. I think that's a powerful moment. Well, and that's right, because also prisons are a design um, as well for um, dealing with um, issues of crime and punishment and rehabilitation. And some, I've done interviews on this, um, don't believe, they don't believe in the prison system. They don't believe it should be, it it has to be seriously reformed and even some 
one told me uh, abolished. So yeah, that's maybe controversial, but then you have to think about these designs, what they do to society. And is it a good design for rehabilitation? Is it productive? Yeah. And I think my personal opinion is most of, most of the time it's not. I think that we, I think prisons are very poorly designed and I've been in several uh, to, to paint murals or to, to have conversations with people. And, um, and I've had a firsthand kind of experience of how, um, how negatively it can impact somebody. Prisons for me don't feel like they are about rehabilitation. They feel like they're about punishment, at least in America. And, um, uh, it's problematic. It's bad design. And some people, they call that the, the school to prison uh, pipeline, you know? Yeah. Um, and so maybe we should be designing better schools that don't resemble, <laughs> I don't think that they seem to resemble prisons, but you know what I mean? They prepare do, certain, yeah. certain, certain, some of them I'd have to, yeah. Um, I'm all for putting more and money into schools and teachers and the kind of caring. Uh, that's what I was just going to say. We can do better. We, we know how to do better. Like the easiest way to solve homelessness is to give people homes. It's expensive. It's less expensive than, than trying to rehabilitate them, than trying to provide services. Um, but their study after study proves that if you give somebody a home, it lifts them out of poverty. Um, it's such a, and we're just ignoring it. You know, we're just letting our, our, our citizens, our, our, our brothers and sisters be homeless. We're letting our brothers and sisters go to prison, you know, um, and, uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. We can design a better system. Well, it's, it's so interesting. And now what I wanted to ask you, I guess, in closing, is that you had said that with your design for social change um, course, um, that you, you know, you kept it within, um, you know, reasonable local problems or things that one could manage. But I'm also, because you must have been hearing a lot of interesting ideas and you must have yourself, um, you know, interesting solutions to the, the broader issues and we're looking at yeah. now whether it's health or education or climate change speaking broadly i'm not talking about necessarily expensive solutions but there must be some i, I want yeah. that listening well so again there were so many ideas in that class usually i would have 12 to 15 students and each student would come up with one final idea but each student might go through 10 or 15 to find their one final idea and some are you know it was really interesting for me to watch the process. One student was interested in smoking cessation. He wanted everybody to stop smoking. And um, his first idea was, how do I make smoking so unappealing that we'll stop something like 50% of people from, from, uh, from picking up a cigarette in the next month? Um, and we started this really deep conversation. And we ended up, I said, you know, so your context is the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. How can we make an impact here? And he went down this path for a long time of a marketing campaign, of creating these materials, of making it difficult. Again, bad design, in my opinion, making it difficult for you to smoke if you're in a certain place because it's uncomfortable. And at the end of the semester, he came to this realization that he just wanted to stop smoking. He just, it was a very personal thing. He clearly cared about his classmates and his colleagues and the state of the world, but he came back to this idea of, I'm just done smoking. So what he designed was, and it's really brilliant, was a, uh, a cigarette um, box-sized package uh, that he could put in his pocket that had all kinds of things. When he wanted a cigarette, he would grab that instead of grabbing a pack of smokes, and it had a... Um, uh, 
a booklet that described why smoking was bad. It had a toothpick, so you had that sort of oral fixation. He had gum. He had, I think, he had a nicotine a, a nicotine patch as well in there. And the whole idea was that he had he always wanted to grab his pack of smokes whenever he wanted to smoke. And when he did that, instead he would have an intervention that would help him stop. The same idea we applied. Um, I think it was a different semester to this woman, um, Monica Pavlucci, who was interested in domestic violence and, and reducing domestic violence. So she, again, she went down this path of starting really big and then focusing as she went. And she ended up finding a target audience, which was women um, between the ages, and I think it was like 18 to 25, that lived in a certain demographic region. And then she brilliantly discovered that there was a makeup packaging product that was already being marketed to these women. It was through uh, MAC, it was a foundation. So she decided that, that was the best possible intervention and um, designed a transparent sticker to go on, on top of the mirror. So when you open up your packaging, um, it says something like it's got a quote from a battered person. And it says something like, um, if you need to get out of your situation, uh, go to this website. And you go to the website and it, it, it instructs you to delete your browser history, to go to a payphone, to call this number, using services that already existed. She wasn't creating new services. Um, it was just identifying who is being hurt, um, how are they being talked to already, and how do we make an intervention at that point? She went so far as to, to hire a photographer to design a prototype. Uh, we got it in front of Mac, actually, and started a conversation with them about potentially using this product. Um, and then conversations fell apart. She graduated, things changed. We never fully executed it. Uh, but just the idea of really starting with, you know, What's my personal story? What's affected me? For me, it might be anxiety. How do I design a product that, that sort of helps me solve that issue? And then how do I expand that product into other spaces? And to just sort of go through that loose process over the course of a semester at different speeds, letting students make their own observations, being in control of their own stories, and to come up with products that, that are genuine, genuinely helpful for them will usually have a broader appeal. And um, it's been, I, like I said, I really miss it. I taught it um, every year for a few years and then had to back away for a minute. Um, but it, the, the idea of students really kind of not creating cookie cutting way, <laughs> we're not all going through the same process and creating the same poster and learning about design through that sort of narrow field. We're thinking really broadly about problems and finding solutions. And it feels like a more honest um, approach. Yeah, so you bring in the uh, very important for design or marketing. Uh, we have this, well, now in an era of uh, mass customization. So you're starting with one idea that's very customized, but then yeah. that might be streamlined so that it, it reaches a number of people like that or finding a group. And then that might, be, as you say, expanded out for other things. That's right. Um, identifying the problem. So you've really given us a lot of tools and ways of approaching design thinking, um, uh, you know, through your own personal example, through the museum, through your teaching. Um, and we just can't wait to just, you know, uh, well, we get beyond COVID time, so we'll be visiting more of the exhibitions, but I know you're reaching exactly. out, so we're all finding new ways, another design problem. So right. I, I want to thank you, uh, Tanner Woodford and the Design Museum of Chicago for expanding our appreciation of design, its importance as a vehicle for social change, and for helping us build a better tomorrow. It starts with good design, doesn't it? Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. This has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed meeting you, and I look forward to seeing where this all goes. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Taya Paradovic. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.